Welcome to Positive Adoption, where you can find adoption, foster care, and trauma-informed parenting all in one place. I'm Kathleen Guire, your host, mother of seven, four through adoption, former National Parent of the Year, author, teacher, and speaker. But more than any of those things, I'm a parent just like you. I know what it's like to raise kiddos from hard places. I used to feel as if I were the only one struggling, and because I felt that way, I isolated myself. I don't want you to feel alone in your parenting journey. So grab a cup of coffee and join me for Positive Adoption, a coffee break podcast. Hi, Kathleen Guire here. Welcome to Positive Adoption. For the month of March, we are talking about five things you can do to help foster and adoptive parents or families. And all of this material is in the book, Five Things, a Tiny Handbook for Adoptive and Foster Families and Churches Who Serve Them. Sandra Flack is joining me again this week, and I'm so happy to have her. Say hi, Sandra. Hey, I'm so happy to be back. And I, this topic this week is huge. The topic last week about, you know, filling in for them for their commitments, that is huge too. But this one is more like a mental thing, is don't have expectations for the new adopted or foster children. So many people expected my newbies because my husband and I had been part of a church for a long time. We were in leadership And I'm not saying that to brag, I'm just setting the stage. But suddenly, when our new kiddos came home, they were expected to be polite, to quote scripture, to be so thankful, to know what the rules were. And for a season, instead of all of my new kids going to church, we had to stay home for a while. And then when we started going, they all sat in one pew with us, like all seven of our kids down a row. And they did not go to kids' church for a long time. And we kind of got called on the carpet for that one. Like the pastor called us into his office to talk to us like, what what is going on? Do you not like children's church anymore? Do you have a thing? And it was just because of the kids not feeling secure or safe. So those expectations can weigh the parents down and weigh the kids down in a way that really is detrimental to the growth and the mental outlook of the parents. Because I remember feeling, I felt ashamed and strange for being called on the carpet for something like that, like come into my office, I want to talk to you kind of thing. And the the pastor completely understood once we understood explained everything, but still those expectations can be huge. And when you're struggling, which believe me, every new adoptive family is struggling with just trying to connect, help the kids feel secure, you know, get food in these kids' mouths, get them to sleep, calm their night terrors. They're just trying to do all of these things that are such hard work and then to have expectations placed on them can be extremely overwhelming. I'll let you talk for a minute, Sandra. Yeah, along those lines, the, the church that we were attending all those years when we were adopting our kids and all of that, thankfully, uh, the pastor and his wife were also adoptive and foster 
parents. And they had also adopted children from Ukraine previously. They were sort of inspirations for us. So when we brought, for example, our youngest home, he was five. He was not ready to be in Sunday school or children's church with other five-year-olds. I actually brought him into the church nursery and I stayed there with him because he was not ready for me to not be with him. Mm -hmm. And our church was, it was totally acceptable in our church. Our church had that adoption and foster care culture. So if you're able to be in a church like that, it's phenomenal, but most churches don't have that. So they're learning as they go, but we had, uh, the, the privilege, the blessing of, of having a church that really understood it for the most part. I do remember, uh, one, one day my son was hugging me and pounding my back. I may have shared this on a previous episode where we chatted and, and to another mom standing there, she intervened and said, Oh, Oh, do not, don't hit your mom. Mm. And he wasn't hitting me. He was hugging me, but patting my back really hard, like for him, because he's sensory seeking and he wasn't going to, he wasn't getting anything so much out of the hug, but he was getting some sensory feedback through that tapping my back, but right. or like he was pounding me on the back. He mm-hmm. was not hurting me. And I wasn't telling him to stop because I knew what he was doing, but to others who don't get it, they don't understand, uh, it's going to look different. And I have to say one, one time I did, I have, I have a brother-in-law and sister-in-law who fostered for many years and they fostered when they first started fostering, they got teen boys Mm. and they were not biological parents. So they had no pre-experience with that. And they had these really hard teen boys who had been through significant and horrific trauma. Yeah. And and now they're teen boys, right? So it's a whole thing. So it's a powder keg. But right. there were I observed other older family members in our extended family who had witnessed some behaviors that these boys had, you know, presented. And the comment was, well, you think these boys would be grateful that you have them and you're doing this for them and they should appreciate what you're doing. Oh my gosh. And I was, it grated on me because I I had to say, you you know, because they don't understand this, this adult grandparent figure um, had no understanding of trauma or the impact of trauma on the brain. And then subsequently behavior, these boys were traumatized They were just trying to survive and they're not going to act grateful when everything in their life has been horrible up till this moment. And how do they really know that this is going to be better or different from what they've already had to live through? So they're not trusting. They're not in an area of a place where they're like, this is wonderful. And thank you for all you're doing for me. They don't, they don't trust. They don't know that this is going to be good. They're operating out of that survival part of their brain. So to, to, for us to think, oh, you should be grateful and be thanking me. It's just not, it's not right. And, and it's, but for extended family, for church folks, if you don't understand trauma and the brain, then you're not going to understand a lot of these behaviors. And then you have this expectation that, well, they should be happy now they're with you and your family and you're feeding them and you're providing them all these things and all of that. And, you know, I sort of had that outlook with the first little girl that came to us, who was a kinship, you know, a kinship member 
family member when we first got custody of her. And I thought, well, now we're all going to live happily ever after because now she has a normal life. And, but that didn't erase the trauma. So it's, it's, I find that I have to educate the educators. I have to educate the church folks. I have to educate anybody who's around my kids because they need to understand, they need to know what lens to look through and they don't know what they don't know. Just like we didn't used to know what we didn't know, but now that we know to be our kids best advocate, we do need, not that we have to give them all the gory personal details about our kids, but I, I talk about trauma and the impact of the brain and they're operating out of fear. And it, you know, you can phrase things enough in a way to where maybe maybe the adult kind of gets it enough to at least not expect so much. Exactly. And sometimes if your kids are a little bit older, you can get it in their words. Because I was a guest on the Resolutions podcast and Chris Campbell was asking me, you know, where did this book come from? Like, why did you write this little book? And it actually was over a period of years. And I won't go into all of that because of the time. But one of the things I did was at the dinner table, I would ask my kids, Like, okay, so when we got to this one, my son, Rafael, who is the youngest, he was probably about 15 at the time. And I asked him what he thought about this situation, about other people having expectations of them. And he said, well, we have expectations of them. And and, uh, we might think that you're a werewolf. That was his answer. What if you're a werewolf? And then he said, um, and this is in the book, you are big, you're scary. And you're probably weird looking and you smell funny. Yeah. And he said, so that, he said, so that was my perspective was, I don't know the, you know, what if you turn into a werewolf in two minutes or, you know, and it's funny that he had that statement and that kind of thinking because he was the youngest when he was adopted. He was 19 months old. So for him to have that perspective, you would think, well, wait a minute, he's been part of your family for, you know, 11 years before you ask him this question or 12 years. He still had that perspective. He still kind of had that distrust and he didn't like the fact that there were hefty expectations placed on him when he thought that he his expectations of other people should be relevant, but usually they weren't which is a common thing in our culture because you're a kid, you know, you, you can't have expectations of adults that, you know, but I really thought that, that his perspective was amazing. You might, you might be a werewolf, you know, and you smell funny and you look funny. (laughs) And they don't know from their previous experience, adults aren't trustworthy, either didn't take care of them like they should have been taken care of or harmed them. Right. So how do they know? So they're sort of expecting the worst from the adults. They don't know that they can trust the the new adoptive or foster parents. Right. So they have expectations too. They expect to be hurt. And that's where we have to disarm that fear and build trust with them. Um, So, but on the outside, others who aren't on the inside, you know, being the foster or adoptive parent, um, it's going to look different to them. Just like the other thing that came to mind was dismaturity. Our kids are often, whether it's from trauma or or a brain-based disability, such as FASD, they're going to, they're, they're not, they're less mature from an emotional and mental point. So my five-year-old who couldn't go to five-year-old 
children's church because he was really operating more on an emotional mental level of a two or three year old. So the nursery is where emotionally he belonged, even though he was five years old and and as tall as a five-year-old. So, but I was in there with him, like I said, and our church was, was totally fine with that. But um, it's that expectation, act your age. But even still today, I have, I have teenagers that I have to parent at a much younger emotional age, just because they're 15 or 17 doesn't mean that they can have the same boundaries or expectations as a neurotypical 15 or 17 year old. Right. And that is a very good point, which is actually part of next week's. But so we will be talking about this more. But I, you know, I think that if you're listening to this, and you have a kid that is emotionally half their age, maybe you've never heard that before. So you're thinking about the future, because we're talking about our teens now. And like my 20, my youngest is now 21. And he just got his driver's license. Mm-hmm. So expect that to continue. Expect that um, because I've talked to many, many parents and they have this idea in their mind that once their child hits 18, that they will magically become this mature adult. And don't expect that because it's not true. So if emotionally a 16-year-old is an 8-year-old who I remember my son used to get a lot of flack when my youngest and my older ones when they were that age too, when they were 15 and 16 and they wanted to stay home on Friday nights and play games with mom and not do any of the things that the other teens were doing is because their emotional age was about 8. And what would an 8-year-old want to do? Stay home and watch a movie with mom or play a video game with mom, which I can't do. I'm not good at that. And, you know, those kinds of things. Um, So that will continue. And eventually, eventually, it will level, it will level off. But it might not be until they're 30. Yeah, yeah. So that expectation, and one of the things that I said in the book is, um, if you have any expectations of the new foster and adoptive child, these are the kinds of things that you should expect. You should expect their emotional age not to be their physical age. That's one of the things. But another thing is, you should expect them to be on guard. You should expect children to need to get to know you before they want to engage in conversation. I can remember when our social worker used to come for a visit after the kids came home and check on them. They would all just disappear and hide. (laughs) And she understood what was going on, thankfully. But some people don't because I remember this was actually at my stepfather's funeral. There was a Polish priest there at the, you know, I don't know. Do you you don't call them awake? Oh, I was going to say reception. That's wrong. <laughs> Where everybody would get together and eat all the food, and you know, yeah. eat. and and so there was a Polish priest there. And when he went over to my kids and found out they were from Poland, and this was like besides doctor's appointments, this is a week after my kiddos had come home. This was their first outing, a funeral. They didn't go to the actual funeral. They just went to the food part. So this Polish priest came over, really good guy, and he started speaking to them in Polish, and they all hid under the table. Yeah. 
And it was such a trigger for them because they had just left the orphanage. And thankfully, he brushed it off and he smiled and he moved on. He didn't demand an answer and he understood. But, you know, those kinds of expectations that sometimes people have are more harmful than good. So, you know, redefine what your expectations are. Redefine that the child is going to be a younger emotional age than he is physically. He's going to be on guard. He might think you're a werewolf. Don't expect them to all of a sudden be a Christian just because they got adopted by Christians. And all of these things that we've talked about, and even teens, they get, I even wrote an article about that, where teens get judged, adopted teens, kids that have had trauma, they get judged, they get judged more harshly for their behavior than kids who are bio, because teens who have been through trauma, they don't know the old game of be one really nice person where the adults are, and then when they leave... Then you start doing all these things that you're not supposed to do, and you're a different person. My kids struggled with that so much because they do the same thing no matter who is there, and then they get in trouble. So just remember those kind of things. I know we're throwing a lot at you. I'll let you finish I'll finish up with any thoughts. Yeah, no, that I agree with everything that you're saying. And, and um, the, the age maturity one, the, the dismaturity I found to be a huge one our daughter that we adopted from a kinship situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was eight, but she acted much, much younger for a very long time. In fact, when we, when she was a teenager, we were sort of cringing thinking, Oh, we're going to have, I'm sure we're going to be headed down that road of teenage rebellion and all of that. And she didn't as a teenager, but in her early twenties, she, she went through that. Mm, yeah, Only it was more scary because now she's of age right. and the poor choices were leading to things that have greater consequences. Now she's 30 and now it's leveled off. And, okay. Uh, I think it's the, the average human brain does not reach full maturity until they're 26. I always like to tell that to all my adult children that are (laughs) (laughs) like, yeah, well, you're not, but, um, but, but that's just your neurotypical brain and, and our children who've come from trauma histories, who have had, uh, alcohol or drug exposure in the womb, those things play in even more so. And they're, they're, they're not going to be that neurotypical, they're, they're just going to behave emotionally and mentally on a much younger level for a right. very long time. Right. Well, thanks for joining us today on Positive Adoption, and we will see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to Positive Adoption. Make sure you subscribe on thewholehouse.org to receive your gift of five things, a tiny handbook for foster and adoptive families and receive a monthly newsletter plus updates when new books or courses are released. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Podomatic, Spotify, or YouTube and leave a review so others can find positive adoption and know the value of the show. You're welcome to send an email to me at positiveadoption at gmail.com and follow me on social media. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at The Whole House and Twitter at Kath Guire. Thanks for listening to the show.